Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered, the podcast of the International Association for the Study of Lung Cancer, a global organization dedicated to research and practice advances in thoracic oncology. You can find all our podcasts on SoundCloud and at IASLC.org in the newsroom. We're your hosts, Dr. Narjus Duma and Dr. Stephen Liu. Welcome to Lung Cancer Considered. I'm Dr. Stephen Liu, Associate Professor at Georgetown University. And I'm Dr. Narjus Duma, an Assistant Professor at the University of Wisconsin. And today we are your hosts for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. We're grateful to have as our guest, uh, Dr. Eddie Guerin joining us today. Dr. Guerin is a professor and director of thoracic oncology at the David Geffen School of Medicine at UCLA. Eddie, thank you for making the time to join us today. Thank you very much. So today we are going to highlight one of the seminal trials in thoracic oncology, HENOS001. This was the phase one study of the PD-1 inhibitor pembrolizumab. Then it was called NK3475. In patients, we advanced non-small cell lung cancer. This study is Explore different doses and schedules in both treatment-naive and previously treated patients with no small cell lung cancer. Kino 001 established the efficacy of pembrolizumab in this subgroup of patients and also showed the potential for a durable response. Today, Kino 001 is part of lung cancer history, is a landmark trial. Dr. Guerin will be here discussing with us the history behind the trial, the most outdated outcomes in our updated analysis in patients with pd one high and non-small cell lung cancer show a five-year survival of over 25%, something that probably 10 years ago was never thought it could happen. This study also established the role of pdl one as a predictive marker and that 50% threshold as a marker for superior outcomes, framing many of the landmark studies that followed, which now shape our practice. Eddie, this was a critical study marking the entry of pembrolizumab into the world of lung cancer, establishing PDL1 as its biomarker, establishing that threshold we're so familiar with. You know, we, we know the data. What we want to hear about today is the trial itself. Now, to start, enrollment in this Keynote 001 study began in 2012 before we had pembrolizumab. It was MK3475. Can you remind us what the treatment landscape for non-small cell lung cancer was at the time? Sure. So in 2012, there was some enthusiasm, certainly, uh, about targeted therapies. And in, in fact, we already had a couple targeted therapies that really did change uh, the treatment landscape for patients. Patients who had EGFR mutations and ALK gene rearrangements were being treated differently, and there were drugs that were available for those patients. Outside of that setting, Patients were generally getting chemotherapy with pemetrexid maintenance. Uh, pemetrexid as a maintenance therapy had by that point had been established. And in a second-line setting, uh, single-agent docetaxel was the standard approach that was, was being used. So we really want to hear the story behind the trial. How did you get involved in the trial? The America approach you? How was that first proposal? Sure. So it, it's actually sort of funny the way things happen, as is often the case. This was not something where there was a major effort for Merck to get me involved in the trial or 
necessarily even for me to uh, approach Merck. Uh, my colleague, Tony Rebus, was conducting the study of MK3475 in melanoma. The study was actually written as uh, a 38-patient phase one study with a 12-patient lead-in for melanoma. And so as a result, there were a lot of sites that had sort of early phase investigators, as well as some melanoma investigators. And um, in early in 2012, he asked if I would be interested in potentially opening a cohort in lung cancer at UCLA. And that's really how my involvement with the study got started. You know, as junior faculty, I love to hear the stories because it's usually an email or something little that then it grows over time and becomes, you know, something like Kino 001. When you were presented with this concept, what was your first reaction about this anti-PD-1 agent in non-small cell lung cancer? So the reality is my background was in biomarkers. And so... I had been involved in some studies looking at immunotherapy, but um, had not necessarily had a long history in immunotherapy at at this point in my career. And really the only thing that was uh, leading to enthusiasm about the study was that it was coming from Tony. And at the time, the things that Tony had been involved with, Tony, of course, uh, had a long history looking at the role of immunotherapies in melanoma really had been so promising. And the fact that that they were now looking in lung cancer led to some enthusiasm. But at the time when we originally started, it was admittedly another study in our list of studies. And a little bit nice because it was a little bit of a unique mechanism. Many of our studies were looking at, for instance, adding a second targeted agent to uh, to erlotinib. And so this study did offer a somewhat different approach than our other studies. Eddie, just to build on that, you know, immunotherapy is not a new concept. We've been doing immunotherapy for some cancers, you know, ever since early days in the NCI, but it had been a, a strategy for kidney cancer, for melanoma, not not for lung. Did you have some hesitation about, you know, immunotherapy in, in lung cancer? While it's commonplace today, at the time, this was uh, really outside the norm. So the thing that's a little funny about that is is one of the things that really did help me a great deal was at the time I I had um, protected research time I had received not that long before that uh, a, a K, which is a career development grant from the from NCI, and that award was really for targeted therapy, which was the thing that people were enthusiastic about in the field at the time. But my mentor on that grant was Steve Dubinet, who is a pulmonologist with a long-standing uh, interest in the role of inflammation and and the role of the the immune system in uh, lung cancer pathogenesis and therapy. And um, so, so in the end, I, I don't know that I was hesitant. I had been involved in some clinical trials. In fact, I was uh, the site PI for the MAGE A3 adjuvant trial, which really was in many respects a a disaster for us. It was very difficult to get patients um, who would have the right HLA type, uh, things like that. And so one of the things that I think made me a little less concerned was that some of the tremendous limitations that were there on, for instance, uh, that MAGE A3 study that required HLA restrictions, things like that, were not here. So 
although I don't know that at the time of launch of study, I had tremendous enthusiasm for it. Um, I also didn't, as I say, the treatment landscape we had was was not so tremendous that there wasn't room for other approaches. And the outcomes were, were quite poor with standard therapy, which maybe leads into my next question. You know, Keynote 001 wasn't just in previously treated patients. There were some patients on that that were treatment naive. And so did you have concerns about using immunotherapy in an unproven form, really, in the first-line setting? So the way that the study played out, I did not have concerns, and, and I uh, maybe I can go through that a little bit. So when so we enrolled uh, the first uh, couple of patients on the study in the spring of 2012. Uh, I believe one was a patient of mine, one uh, my colleague Jonathan Goldman, and at the time there were, you know it was just something that was a different mechanism. There became significant enthusiasm when. In June, the data from the nivolumab study did show evidence of benefit in patients with non-small cell lung cancer. At the time, we enrolled those initial two people and the initial cohort of the study, which was at the time what was called cohort C. Um, cohort A was looking at the sort of dose escalation. B was looking at the melanoma patients. And C was this uh, group looking at patients with non-small cell lung cancer. At that time, it was for previously treated patients. And so the study was only expanded to uh, frontline patients at the time that there was um, there was already some evidence that there was efficacy of the drug. And we certainly didn't have that much concern in that, in that we definitely do have a population, um, it may be a little bit more so even in Southern California, who is just completely averse to the idea of cytotoxic chemotherapy. And I think that also made it easier for us uh, to eventually, when the study did enroll uh, frontline patients, to expand to that group of patients. And, you know, hearing about Kinel 001, I, I remember I was a PGY3 when the approval happened and my mentor, Dr. Gutierrez and Hackensack came to me and said, this is big deal. And now when I, I talk to our fellows, like they didn't start a training without pembrolizumab, like it has been around and there has it has been used. So learning for you, you know, we bring that perspective to junior faculty and fellows that, you know, things are important have improved and we continue to improve for our patients and partners to this trial. And as we talk about Keynote 001, I think it's very important to mention the biomarker work. We know there was a formal plan with training and validation sets. Did this biomarker work slow the immunotherapy trial or this trial in compared to other trials, for example? So one thing that I think is uh, that I always find very interesting about Keynote 001 is is its tremendous simplicity. And if if one looks what it really is is a study where everybody gets a biopsy, then they get the drug, and then you see what happens. And um, that simplicity really was uh, you know was tremendously helpful in I think making it uh, a study that went quickly. Now, one thing in terms of the speed that I think 
sometimes people can can take different meanings from this is as you can imagine this was a study that um had a a, a drug for which there were no approved drugs in class so at the time that keynote 001 was enrolling one could not have received nivolumab or atezolizumab you know, as standard of care. Either you could get the drug in the context of the study or get uh, one of the competitor drugs in the context of the study, or you didn't have the opportunity for a drug that at some point in the study was clearly showing benefit. So in general, I think that the requirement for a biomarker in this particular study, once you had shown that there were some people who were deriving tremendous benefit, did not necessarily slow it down that much. Now, the training and validation set in some ways could, um, because if you ever look at the schema, it looks incredibly confusing in terms of who could enroll. There were some cohorts that you needed to be PDL1 positive, there are some cohorts where you needed to be PDL1 negative, but oftentimes it actually wasn't that hard to enroll. So, for instance, we at, at UCLA basically set up a program so that we could enroll as many of these patients as we possibly could, uh, bank their specimens for future research. And this was a major effort of ours. And we ended up, uh, we enrolled actually 98 patients. When we look at our correlative set, we always include uh, 97 because one patient basically got one dose and then transferred uh, to another site. So we don't really have any of the follow-up data on that patient. So 97 of the of the patients really received the the, you know, the, essentially all of their care at our site. So we knew the ins and outs of this study. And there were many times, for instance, where even though you had uh, different cohorts, it didn't really slow us down that much. So for instance, there were periods when there was a PDL1 negative cohort and a PDL1 positive cohort that was enrolling at the same time. So we figured that as long as the biopsy was adequate, the result would be either positive or negative. It's a binary uh, test. So we would start the screening uh, evaluations in that patient as soon as we got the biopsy so that by the time we got the biopsy result, all we needed to do was determine whether or not they were going in the negative or the positive cohort. And since the treatment was always the same, which was that they were getting, you know, pembrolizumab um, at at you know, slightly different doses, but but otherwise, really, everything was the same. I don't think it slowed it down um, as much as as theoretically it, it could. I think that uh, the simplicity, I think, is a lesson for people in looking at studies like this. The biomarker is being important, also, is an interesting lesson. But I think the idea that sometimes gets pushed around that that you know patients are are not in any way averse to biopsy. That isn't entirely fair. I think that patients are certainly willing to put up with a tremendous amount, including um, a biopsy and sometimes even multiple biopsies, if they have the potential that the therapy that they're going to get as a result may be better than what's available to them as standard of care. And and I certainly agree with that, Eddie. I think our patients, you know, donate their time and so many things to be paraclinical trials. And if you're able to have a good discussion with them, you know, they're, they go through so much other testing and things and, you know, and only temple to them when they have to drive extra for being part of a trial or they have to, you know, get PKs and be there for eight hours or so. So now trying to set back a little bit back when the trial was being the design and early recruitment, what was the official study position for patients with target mutations like EGFR and ALK? 
<laughs> bring them on. There, there was no um, there was no exclusion based on that. The only thing that was excluded was the patients with a sensitizing EGFR mutation or ALK gene rearrangement were excluded from the frontline cohort. But outside of that, there was really no prohibition against them. You also have to remember that at the time of the study launch, um, there were not third-generation EGFR inhibitors. Um, and in fact, we were running at the same time um, studies of third-generation EGFR inhibitors, and patients with EGFR mutations were in fact very excited about the study, as well as gene rearrangements, and were often enthusiastic about enrolling at the study. From where we sit today, we know that that group of patients didn't stand to benefit as much but from where we sat at the time, we did not know that. You know, Eddie, the, the biomarker work here, like Narju said, so so important. And while we've looked at PDL1 in all of the similar studies, I think you'll agree that Keynote 001 is you know, the one that has the most formal, rigorous biomarker validation. Does that come from your own background in biomarker work, or was this something that came from the sponsor? You know, I would like to to take credit for that, but the reality, of course, is that um, that when you have a, a you know a, a huge and very expensive development plan, um, the essential things for development are often made by uh, by industry. So, from my perspective, I was certainly happy to contribute to you know expertise to the the biomarker plan, and certainly was uh, highly enthusiastic about evaluation of the biomarker. Um, which continued to be highly controversial for a long period of time, even after the publication of the original article and the approval of the drug. But I think one of the additional things that I think is is very interesting and, and an interesting issue in drug development in general is that I still very frequently meet with companies who, when I sort of try and convince them of the importance of uh, a biomarker evaluation early in the development of the drug. They'll explain to me that the only thing that's of tremendous relevance is to have your drug out first. One of the things about this study that was very clear is that there was no way this was going to be the first PD-1 inhibitor that was developed because um, the drug was, in many respects, several years behind nivolumab. So one has to remember that by the time we had two patients uh, that had been treated with non-small cell lung cancer, with the drug, with a single dose, um, data on nivolumab in a large number of patients with non-small cell lung cancer was presented at ASCO. So this drug was going to be behind its competitors, but I think did show the value of looking at the biomarker and focusing on the biomarker. Uh, I think that one other thing that that did become very controversial about it is that the biomarker was not a perfect predictor. And I think that 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 complicated it, and I think did take, um, particularly from from uh, the perspective of Merck, uh, you know, a, a lot of discipline to say, look, we have a biomarker that isn't EGFR mutation, that isn't uh, perfectly predicting, but still could be helpful in figuring out how to position this drug appropriately to best uh, improve the outcomes for patients. Now, a, a lot's changed from then to now. You know, thinking of a world before immunotherapy, it's hard to, to remember back that far. But you know, one thing that hasn't changed is it can be challenging to track down some of these archival specimen blocks. And you know, all the biomarker work that you did, and we learned so much from this study, you had to track down a lot of these tumor blocks from institutions outside of, of Westwood. So uh, were there challenges in getting some of those blocks? There were often many challenges in getting the blocks. And 
one thing that um, happened as the study went on, uh, the the reality was this was not an easy study to conduct at the site level. And so, you know, I basically was fortunate to have some uh, funds that I had available as philanthropic funds that I'd obtained over, over a few years. It was not a tremendous amount at, at the time, but it, it was enough that I could hire a few people you know, and I, I could have hired sort of one person over a few years. Um, I had not hired people to help over, you know, prior to this. But basically, I said, okay, we're going to hire anyone that that we can, and, and basically spend all the money we have to try to learn as much about this as as we possibly can. So, so we actually had a, a team that I, I called the correlative team. And oftentimes they were the ones who would diligently uh, track down samples. And there were um, many occasions where we had to pay large, you know, large amounts to an uh, outside institution to get the the slides in a, a timely fashion to enroll the patient. Um, and there were even times when we had people who who would drive out to outside institutions um, so that we could get the uh, the the slides in time. Now. One of the things that made it a little bit easier is that in many of these cases, particularly in the previously treated cohort, you really needed to get a new biopsy um, in order to enroll the patient. But in some of the the, the treatment naive patients, it was trying to get uh, the, the the archival specimen in a time that was appropriate to enroll the patient on on study, and it did take time. And actually, we presented that data and, and have published on it. It's very clear that it that it 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 did delay people from getting a a, a therapeutic approach um, when you needed to to sort of get these track down these tissues, set up a biopsy, all of this. And um, fortunately, again, our, our patients uh, were tremendous about working with us to to get the specimens that were needed. And and obviously, a lot of that had to do with the fact that they they stood to benefit. I think we all have a story about securing some tissue block. And I live in the Midwest, and usually that entitles as a winter store coming or leaving, uh, trying to get a tissue block for a patient. So Eddie, you and Dr. Goldman enrolled a large number of patients in this study. What were your early impressions of the drug when you were you know, starting to enroll patients and see how they were doing? So certainly our initial uh, impressions were favorable. Um, but the other thing that we saw was that we needed to build up a large team in order to conduct the study. So the cohort C that I mentioned was a, supposed to be a 35 patient expansion into lung cancer. And um, that was really the data set that led to the uh, focus on pd one as a biomarker. We enrolled uh, 12 of those uh, 35 patients. We had three responders um, you know, that, that were part of that. And there, we do have a patient who continues, uh, you know, to this day, uh, to follow with us in clinic. So it became quite clear early on that there were patients that had, uh, tremendous to, had the ability to, to have tremendous benefit. Um, we didn't know who those were and that led to certainly for someone like me, whose whose interest had traditionally been biomarkers, to focus on on the biomarker, um, but but it was very clear early on that that this was a, a, an effective drug. When this study was coming around, this is a pretty new concept. Now today, in part because of direct to consumer advertising, in part because of coverage by the lay media, 
know, patients often will initiate discussion on immunotherapy, but not the case when you were running this, this first study. So when you presented the study to patients, to caregivers and families, how receptive were they to this concept of immunotherapy? So interestingly, patients were tremendously receptive to this concept of immunotherapy. And this this was always sort of the promise of immunotherapy. And I used to joke that the immunotherapy uh, people were the ones who always had the posters in, in the back corner of the poster hall. And the issue was that the idea was really cool, um, that the immune system would be able to eliminate cancer the way it, it eliminates infectious disease. And that led to great enthusiasm. The reason they're at the back corner of the poster hall is they just never worked. Um, patients really liked this idea of their immune system fighting against the tumor. And we found patients to be very receptive. One additional thing that I would say helped us a great deal is um, you know, is that this was happening at a time when social media was becoming a bigger and bigger player and people really were were looking at um at, at that to help them decide what to do. And they were searching for options. So the reality is that we often weren't having to do uh, any sort of sales job at all. And in fact, the patients were coming in specifically asking for this. Um, and there was more than one time when, frankly, I was cut off, um, you know, because the patients, you know, said, you know, look, this is what we're here for. Just give me the thing to sign and let's get started. And, you know, I also, I, I like to give some credit to, to Jack West. I know he was, you know, at the time, very involved with a lot of these uh, social media groups where people were able to um, exchange ideas. And um, those people came in knowing exactly what they wanted. And, and sometimes they even said, you know, I parked at a meter because I understood it was cheaper. You know, why don't you just give me the form, you know, <laughs> let me sign it, take my blood, and then we'll go from there. You know, th this was a, a highly informed group of patients. And, and the reality is that this was not a situation where there was a tremendous amount of salesmanship that needed to be done patients were extremely enthusiastic about this idea and still are. Um, and sometimes uh, I think we all face this in the clinic now where, um, you know, it's hard for patients even to give up on this idea of immunotherapy, even when sort of effective options have, have really uh, are, are not necessarily available anymore. We're fortunate enough to have our guest today, Mr. Kerry Parton, who was himself a participant in this study. Kerry, thank you for being here. Thank you very much for having me. I appreciate it. So, Kerry, are you able to tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. I'm a native of Southern California. I've lived here pretty much all my life, married with a couple of adult children and a very cute three-year-old granddaughter. So back in, in February of 2013, I was out playing golf with some friends and, um, and kind of tweaked my back, which wasn't really all that unusual. I, something had happened from time to time. I felt pretty good other than that. After a couple of weeks, it hadn't gotten any better. So I went and saw a chiropractor, went to him for a couple more weeks, and, and things just kept getting worse and worse. Finally, on uh, St. Patrick's Day morning uh, of that year, uh, the, I was in a lot of pain, and my wife just kind of was fed up with the whole deal and said, okay, I'm taking you to the hospital. And I didn't really fight back too much at that point. Got to the hospital, messed around there for a while. They saw I was in a lot of pain, decided to put me through a CT scan. 
And a little while later, the doctor came back in and said, um, Mr. Parton, I'm sorry to tell you this, but you have tumors throughout your body. Uh, we've called our local oncologist. He'll be here in a couple hours. Um, good luck and uh, best wishes. And, and walked out to go deal with his other patients in the ER that day. Um, so that, that kind of how things got started. Kind of a shock to say the least. Uh, I was in pretty good, well, I thought I was in pretty good health anyway. Um, from there, I worked with a local oncologist, went through radiation. Um, I had a, a fairly good sized tumor on my T9 vertebrae, as well as some smaller tumors on my sacrum. And then there were five tumors throughout on soft tissues. So we get, did radiation on the hard tissues, started chemo. Chemo made me very, very sick to say the least. Um, by about the 1st of June, I went in for another CT scan. It became apparent that the, the, the standard chemo wasn't working. Tumors had grown by as much as 20%. Um, our local oncologist said, I'm sorry, I, can't, I don't really have any other ideas. And so we went back up to UCLA and saw Dr. Guerin. Went through a, a variety of things to see if I was healthy enough even to go through treatment. And I think it was in mid-June, we started uh, treatment with the MK3475. Now, MK3475, uh, a drug we now know as pembrolizumab, uh, was an immunotherapy agent uh, only available at the time through clinical trials. And you know, Dr. Doom and I are clinical investigators. We know that a lot of times the best treatment that's out there, the most promising drugs are really only available through trials. But participating in a clinical trial is a demanding process, takes a lot of time, takes resources, can be a little scary. Uh, before your experience with, with this study, what was your impression of, of clinical trials or clinical research and, and how did that compare with what it actually was? You know, I, I'm probably like most individuals across the the country and around the world. When I hear clinical trials, the impression that I always had was, you know, it's a 50-50 chance if you're going to get the actual drug, but that they were a very important part of, of progressing the medical uh, medical science. I mean, they were they were very important. So I was a little hesitant, but on the other hand, you know, Dr. Guerin and the, the UCLA staff, Dr. Goldman and, and the others did a great job of explaining that this was a very early, early stage clinical trial and that everyone was getting the, the drug. I mean, this was like early, this is basic research is that I think the, the term that's used of, we don't have any idea if this is going to really work. So we're going to give you an opportunity to help us find out. I was pretty excited about it, but you understand too. I mean, at that point in time, I was about half dead. I I was in extreme pain. I was on a whole bunch of different painkillers. I'd lost 50 pounds. Um, I couldn't sit down. I had to either lay flat or stand up. So I this, anything that was offering me hope of survival was something that I was more than more than willing to give it a try. It sounds like you you had your your family, your wife a whole team really helping to advocate on your behalf. What were their impressions of, of the trial and of the research? Once they started looking around and, and trying to find out, you know, what was the drug about and 
some other things, they were all, they, they were pretty supportive. I have a sister-in-law who's a ICU nurse in, in Colorado. And, and she was saying, yeah, you ought to give this a try. It, it's a, it's got to be a good opportunity. It's going to be a well-controlled study. You're going to be under lots of lots of uh, care and lots of people looking over your shoulder. My wife was very enthusiastic. And again, most everybody else, the whole team was, was pretty enthusiastic about being involved. Thank you, Carrie, for sharing that with us. I think, you know, it probably was very like nerve wracking to you, the compound didn't have a name yet, right? They came to use, we're going to do NK3475. So what were that, you know, initial impressions about getting a compound that didn't have a name and that, you know, was so new? Actually, I thought that was pretty cool. <laughs> I thought that was the fact that they didn't have a, that it was so new and so cutting edge that they had a, they had a technical name, which today I still can't pronounce, but Pembrolizumab. I mean, I was happy to say that it was MK3475, but it also, again, it indicated to me that this was, this was cutting edge research. And this is something that, you know, if I'm lucky enough to, to be part of will help a whole lot of other people maybe down the road. We also want to have a quick update about you. How are you doing now? You know, we we are hearing your story at diagnosis and considering the trial, but we would love to hear how is Carrie today. Carrie today is great. Um, so within within probably within the first year after treatment started, the tumors were reduced by ninety five percent. The tumors have pretty much stayed in that. There's there's tissue there that short of going in and taking um, samples to see if they're can active cancer or just scar tissue. There, this is five percent that's still there. I went back to work for a period of time. I chose to retire here a couple of years ago. I can pretty much go out and do anything and everything I want to do. Um, I go see Dr. Garen and the UCLA staff. Um, every six weeks now for uh, for another round of of Keytruda. But the the concept, I haven't had any new growth or any changes in over three years. So I'm trying to get to a five-year spot to say, yeah, there's nothing new and life is great. Um, I'm able to go play with my granddaughter. I can go out and do stuff with friends. When When and if COVID goes away, we'll start traveling again. Um, life couldn't be much better, to tell you the truth. And now looking at things, you know, with the benefit of hindsight, are there any things you would have done differently with this study? You know, I think, of course, it's it's very easy to look back and, and sort of, you know, list things that would be, um, that would have been done differently. In the end, I'm not, you know, I, I'm not sure that, that I can think of a, a tremendous amount that that I would have said should be done differently. I think that it took a while at the beginning to enroll because, again, one of the reasons that, as I mentioned, that we were able to enroll so briskly at UCLA, many of these sites were focused on melanoma 
and, and things. I think one thing that maybe could have been done differently, and, and I, I give a lot of credit on this to Tony Rebus, Tony Rebus immediately saw that there was the potential for this to be a, a very effective approach in non-small cell lung cancer and basically split the study so that um, certain aspects, I wasn't needing to beg him for study staff, for instance, that, you know, that if there was, um, if, if there was money coming in from enrollment of lung cancer patients, I didn't have to beg Tony to send one of his nurse coordinators to, to help us. Um, I think that was tremendous insight at the study level I think that's something that institutions could look at going forward because I think in the end, institutionally, it was a great benefit to do that, that that basically I was able to take this piece of the study. You know, Tony wasn't looking to be a lung cancer guy all of a sudden. And that institutionally, we, you know, we were both able to be heavily involved in a, in a program that really, I think, um, has helped tremendously for both patients with, with melanoma and non-small cell lung cancer. And I think um, he deserves a lot of credit to that. I think that if other sites had been able to figure that out, I think that maybe there would have been the potential to even get to some of these answers more quickly. Now, Eddie, uh, we, we've now got almost a decade of, of hindsight on this study. And you know, personally, I look at Keynote 001 as one of the most important studies for lung cancer, you know, period. And from the inside, uh, with that hindsight, what's your perspective on this study today in terms of where it sits? Well, First, I, you know, I, I thank you very much, and uh, you know, it's 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 tremendously exciting for me to hear that. It, one of the things that I think is probably hard from where people sit today to realize is this was not a study that was generating tremendous uh, enthusiasm in the field. Comparatively, um, there was already uh, you know data from nivolumab and you know, well, this study was ongoing. And so for me personally, I sort of for, for probably three years just put my head down and worked at, at this. Um, but it wasn't a, a study that I, I think was generating tremendous enthusiasm. Um, in fact, the that cohort C that I that I mentioned that I think was was so instrumental in in the development of the drug and the focus on the biomarker, when I first presented that was at World Lung in Sydney, Australia. And that data merited a mini oral. So, um, so I had five minutes to discuss, you know, at that point what I'd been working on for for well over a year, you know, basically all day, every day. And so I think that that you know it wasn't something that was that had was was the the sort of most exciting study in people's minds at the time. Um, but I think that by asking simple questions we got clear answers and, and some of those clear answers are still coming. And I, I know we now have the five-year data, which really has shown that this has changed the outcome. And, and, and I don't mean this study alone. Um, uh, there are other drugs as well, but that this class of drugs has really changed outcomes and it's been tremendously exciting to see. This is a landmark trial and you have such a wonderful career already. What advice would you have for junior faculty or trainees that are interested in a career as a clinical investigator? Well, first of all, thank you. You know, thank you very much. And and you know, I think that certainly um, when you're early in your career, um, you know, it feels like you're just running through constant disasters um, in many respects in terms of at least your own your own personal role. And I think that it, it is a very difficult time when you're an early stage investigator. I think that the advice that I would give people is one, 
gain the skills that are helpful. I, um, you know, I was fortunate to be able to enroll in, for instance, a graduate program where I was able to learn um, some of the statistics about uh, clinical trial design, um, things like that, that helped. Um, one of the other things that's always funny for me when I look back is I was on the faculty for several years before I had any publications. Many people come into a situation that is uh, sort of an ideal situation. They're in a program where where there's a long track record of success of the program, that that everything's set up nicely for you. But I would argue that's not the rule. And I think that um, sort of belief in yourself that you can really help make things better for patients and that, uh, you know, that eventually you'll you'll find your way can can help tremendously. And then also to sort of recognize when you do have what what is a good opportunity for you, when you are in, in a position that uh, that you really can can do something that has the potential to to change things. And I think um, there's no question I had to sort of shut down things in in some level. And focus on this. I was not at this point. Um, once I got involved in Keynote One, I wasn't trying to get the next Erlotinib plus drug X in uh, in a salvage setting um, study. That if that was where things were going to go, and that was the next big break, it was it was not going to be mine. And so I, I think that there's a lot that that you know that I've certainly learned in this process. I've you know, I, I think it's it's a wonderful community we have. I, I thank the IS, ISLC for sort of fostering a really kind and caring community, one that is collaborative. But I think that the main thing is is even when you do hit frustrations, and and I I will say certainly I um, I had many frustrations in those early years, and you know many times when I, when I really questioned whether I would be able to put myself in a position to 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 really um, be involved in projects that would make things substantially better for patients, but by sort of gaining the appropriate skills and working hard and and figuring out where your opportunities are, you know I think as a community. Over the last several years, we've been very successful at improving the outcomes for our, for our patients. And although um, clinic is still frustrating at times, we have many patients who who don't do it as well as as uh, as we would like. You know, particularly for people who are earlier in their career, you probably can't imagine how different my clinic feels today than when I started on faculty, and and that's exciting. Do you have one or two lessons that you got from Kino 001 that now you apply to all your clinical trials? So I, I do. So I think that one of the things that I apply, I wouldn't necessarily to say necessarily all the trials, but all the drugs I'm involved with development in is understand that drug. Um, I think that the idea that the most important thing is always to race your drug out into um, to be the fastest one into development is, is not correct. I think that um, I like being involved in projects where we're really defining what, what the drug is, what the drug does, how the drug works, and who may stand to benefit from the drug. And I think that in general, that's one lesson I take is understand the drug and, and understanding the drug is, is oftentimes worth taking extra time um, rather than racing through. The other thing, and I, I was fortunate because in many respects, this was always my opinion, even going into the study. One of the big hot topics when I started the uh, my involvement in Keynote 001 were sort of, uh, you know, clever statistical designs. 
a lot of uh, a, a lot of different approaches. And my my view at the time was that people weren't doing better from lung cancer, not because we didn't have enough clever statisticians, but because we didn't have enough good drugs. And, you know, I think that's right. I think that when one looks at the simplicity of Keynote 001, you you have to, on some level, particularly if you were very closely involved with it, to, to take from it that that the complexity of a clinical trial is not always a great strength, that sometimes the simplicity um, can be a great strength. And if you ask a, a specific question, and maybe in this que- study, there were two questions. One, does the drug work? And once you had an answer to that, you know, is there anything you can do in, you know, particularly for PDL one that identifies in whom it works uh, best, that you can answer those limited number of questions. You don't need to have, you know, 25 hypotheses in a study, and that when you do, it oftentimes will frankly even complicate the the evaluation of the study. Well, we're really, really thankful for, for to you for sharing those spares of wisdom with us. Um, we are wrapping up. Stephen and I would like to thank you f- for listening, and we especially would like to thank Eddie for taking the time to speak with us today. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. I, I really uh, appreciate the opportunity to be here. And, and I certainly anytime talking about this study, I'd be remiss if I, if I didn't, um, you know, thank the, the, in addition, obviously, to, to all the people involved in, in the webcast, but to thank the patients and the staff who are involved. Um, the staff, you know, were incredible in terms of allowing uh, this to happen. It's been very gratifying for me personally to watch as many of them have gone on into careers in medicine, oftentimes as physicians, and to see um, hopefully as, as they're able to move things forward. And also, you know, there's tremendous appreciation for the patients who were part of this study. They you know, have been incredible and often continue to be incredible. Um, I, I, there's one patient I, I remember who we, we had to to radiate one area and, or, and he said, you know, if you're going to radiate that, would it help you um, from a scientific perspective if you biopsied it first? I said, well, actually it would and that, and that we did. I think that, um, you know, one of the nice things about having such a large population on this study is that the human aspect you're actually able to see. And so, Back when, around the time the drug got approved back in 2015, I was able to invite uh, Jonathan Goldman and and all the other um, uh, people from our team that were involved in the study, as well as um, sort of spouses and the patients and, and their spouses for a banquet where everyone socialized and outside of the, the general age difference where the patients tended to be older, um, generally you weren't able to tell the difference between who were the patients who were participating on the trial and who the, the study team was. And, and that was really a, a, you know, a tremendous experience and, and one that I, I must admit when I started my career, I never thought I'd be able to have. So it, it's been a tremendous experience um, to be part of the study. I, you know, I'm very appreciative of the people at Merck, uh, Greg Lubinecki, you know, who who was um, at the time the main person I interacted with there. And, and it, it really all in all has been a, a great experience. We also want to extend our heartfelt thanks to, to Mr. Kerry Payton for your time, for sharing your story, and of course, for your important contribution to, to lung cancer research. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate the opportunity to participate. Thank you, Kerry, for sharing that with us. And um, I think your perspective is invaluable. For, for us as clinical researchers and also for patients and the, the lung cancer community as a whole. That, that's all for this episode of Lung Cancer Considered. 
Uh, we hope you'll tune in on the first and third Mondays of every month to give us a listen. Don't forget to like the podcast and to share it with your colleagues and friends. Stay safe and be well. Thank you for listening to Long Cancer Concert. You can find all our podcasts on our website, islc.org, in our newsroom, or on SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rank, like, write comments, and share your favorite episodes with your colleagues. 